Hello and welcome to this latest University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson, and this week I went to Falmer to speak to Samita Verma, Professor and Honorary Consultant in Hepatology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Samita's free upcoming inaugural lecture is entitled Making Dreams a Reality, Eliminating Hepatitis C Virus and Improving Symptom Burden in Cirrhosis, and it takes place on October 23rd. More details can be found in the podcast description. Samita began by explaining the origins of her career in hepatology. Okay, so for me, it's a bit of a cliche, actually, because I often get asked, you know, why, why I chose hepatology, because I don't fit the classical phenotype of a, of a hepatologist. So I think for me, the defining moment was when I was a third year medical student back in Delhi, and I witnessed my first death. It was actually a woman who was pregnant who developed liver failure, and she was as yellow as can be. Tragically, both died. But since then, I have just been fascinated by people who have liver disease. And I must admit, when I was a year three medical student, I never thought I would end up in Yorkshire or Brighton or Johns Hopkins or University of Southern California. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I wanted to do hepatology. Does it feel strange to look back on all the places you've been, like you've just said there? Indeed, yes. 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 Often, you know, things are often not in your destiny. But, but I think fate, fate has a way of making everything work out, work out at the end. You moved from Delhi to Yorkshire to train as a hepatologist. Yes, so actually I did my basic training in Delhi. I did my post-graduation from Delhi and came to the UK in uh, 1992. And I trained up north. So I, I, tra- I trained in Blackburn. I trained in um, Leeds, in Yorkshire, in Hull. And then, yes, so I did because in those, in fact, even now we have to rotate when we do our training and it is quite long, can be five to seven years if you do research as well. So yes, I trained mostly up in the north. And how did you find life in the UK initially then, kind of outside of your work? Did it take you long to adjust from from India or not so much? Well, actually, I spent part of my childhood in the UK as well. So I came here when I was 11 or 12 years old because my dad came here for further training. He's a doctor too. So I did have some, some idea. But yes, it is a it is a big change. And was your father kind of instrumental then in your in your move into into medicine too, or not, or not so much? Uh, well, uh, I guess my kind of home environment was pretty academic because my mom's a teacher and my father's a doctor. And in India, there's always this emphasis on 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 education. So, and I guess when I was growing up in India, there weren't too many options then in the 70s, you know. So if you, if you had to become a professional, it was either a doctor or a lawyer. Or, but my passion then was even maybe journalism. Okay. But journalism, because I like writing. So mm-hmm. I think journalism wasn't that safe a career for women back then in India. And has it ever been tempted to try and return to that? Or have you managed to do any, any journalism along the way? Or? Well, because I'm an academic, I do a lot of writing, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, grants, papers... You know, so I guess I do fulfill my objectives of being a journalist somewhat. Okay. Yeah. And I think that I'm right in saying you then swapped England for the US, uh, working at first the University of Southern California and then John Hopkins University Hospital, as you mentioned. Um, I wonder why you made the move to America in the first place. Was it purely for work reasons? Well, actually, it was uh, because of family reasons, because my, uh, my husband had moved there. So I kind of followed him there. But it, it actually worked out to be a fantastic, fantastic opportunity because both of these, both these institutes are one of the top-ranked institutes for hepatology and the who's who of hepatology works there. So, you know, 
guys who probably defined what hepatology is, who first defined the need to have liver units in hospitals, who did a lot of amazing work in hepatology, worked in both these places. And that just made my passion for hepatology stronger. So mm. I, was, I, was, I was really lucky. Must be quite inspiring. It was really inspirational, mm. I, I have to admit. Okay, and um, so th- that, that first role then at the University of Southern California, you said you moved because of your husband's work. Had you already got that job or did you kind of search for that when you moved to the US, if you know what I mean? A bit of both. A bit, a bit of both. Okay, sure. And um, you talked about your, before about your great pride at working at John Hopkins. And maybe for people that aren't so familiar with the reputation of that institution, can you just explain a little bit about why? Yeah, because uh, I think it's, it's consistently ranked as, as the top two. I mean, that, I think Johns Hopkins and Harvard are, are consistently ranked as either the best or the second best hospital in the world. Uh, also ranked as the best hospitals for training. And it was a totally, totally mind-blowing experience, I think. It was very intense. So the year that I spent there, I probably learned or got as much experience as I would have got in five years elsewhere. Really? But yeah, but it, it really shaped me. It really defined me, I think. And, and again, the fact that I got a chance to work with so many inspirational people there. You know? mm-hmm. Did you know that it had shaped you at the time? Or was it only looking back that you can see that? I think when I landed there, it was really intimidating because I landed there and it was a massive place and they put me on the wards. I think they, they do a kind of a baptism by fire to see if you can survive. Mm. So they put me on the wards. Normally the wards are for two weeks, but they put me on for four weeks. Right. And the very first call that I got was, was from one of the ICUs, from the intensive care units. And I went looking for the intensive care unit and then I was... It was informed that there were actually 15 different intensive care units. Like most hospitals have a couple. They had 15 different, so I had to find my way around. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, was, it was really, uh, it was an experience. And again, the very first time I was on call, I was informed that there was going to be an emergency transfer coming by helicopter. It was, it was going to land on the helipad. You know, it, it, was, it was like amazing, mm. amazing. That kind of leads us on to another question in that, how do you kind of stay cool in that moment then? Because it must be quite easy to, to panic when you get that urgent call to, to go to intensive care or something like that. How have you found that you managed to stay cool in the moment? I think you just switch on to action mode. I think you, you kind of work it at a spinal level. All your fear and all your anxiety go out of the window because you're there to do a job. Mm. And this is what you have trained to do. Yeah. You know, and yes, you've got to have a certain level of you know, anxiety to keep you going. Mm. But not that much anxiety that you can't function. And remember that you work as a team because they had a fantastic system there that if there was any outside referral, it just went into a teleconference. Okay. So you, the surgeon, the transplant coordinator, the outside hospital were all uh, pulled into one call. So everyone knew what was going on. So it wasn't just you because you can't do everything. You know, it's a team, team effort. I'm not a surgeon. Mm. So we need to have the surgeons on board. We need to have the neurosurgeons on board, the transplant surgeons, the transplant coordinators, everyone needs to be there so Indeed. it's a it's a it's a team team effort and just going back to that kind of psychological aspect then how do you manage that balance of having enough anxiety to be kind of motivated to action but not overflowing into into panic i suppose or again is it just a natural instinct you think? i think it comes with with experience and time so there's no way that i would have had it if i didn't have the say for example experience of working at usc or doing the training and, and, you know, you kind of develop it over time. So I can remember my very first year as a consultant, what I was and what I am now. And hopefully I have evolved into both a better person and, and a better hepatologist. Because I think both kind of coexist 
Mm. I think you, because in our profession, you know, you're you're dealing with human beings, so that that humanity has to come first before anything else. You know. And can you cultivate that, or does that again does that just come come naturally? I don't know the answer to that. I think it comes from inside, and I think most I think most of the people that I work with with the uh, with in the NHS have it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 very rarely worked with someone who has been inhumane. Hmm. Okay, and going back to your kind of life in California, then it's a very vivid place to live, isn't it? In some it ways, is. did you what do you recall from that time outside of work? Then all was work kind of so all-consuming that you didn't really have much of a chance to explore it. No, I think one of the reasons that you remain sane in work is that you've got to have a life outside of medicine. Mm. That's absolutely essential because that's what centers you and that's what balances you. So, so you know, I had very good support from family, from friends. There was lots to do in California and travel, you know. So, for example, you can be swimming and skiing within an hour's difference. Such was the weather hmm. that you could swim and then travel one hour and then, and then go skiing. You know, it was, it was an amazing place. Yeah. Yes, it's an amazing place to be in. So you were able to kind of forget the work to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to be able to do that. Okay. You, you have to be able to switch off. And what do you, it might lead on to the next question about what you miss about your time in America then. Is, is it that kind of, those kind of pastimes or is there anything else? What I miss about working in the States is, is, uh, is the fact that they, they, have, they are certainly better funded and they certainly have better infrastructure if you're working in a niche area. So for example, if you, if you want to be a general physician, I don't think it really matters where you work. But if you work in a niche area, they they ha- certainly have the infrastructure and the funding. Was that due to the institutions you're working? Yes, at or the absolutely. Actual? Okay, so that's not necessarily nationwide. Or? No, no. No. Okay. But certainly, as as regards provision of healthcare, I don't think anything can beat the NHS no. because uh, it is it is not based on your ability to earn. It's you know it's a universal coverage, irrespective of who you are. Mm. And certainly in, in in my field, it's a great equalizer because, for example, I've seen a CEO and a cleaning lady next to each other after transplant, mm, you know? So yeah. it's, a, it's a fantastic equalizer. Very level, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. If you are sick, you're going to be treated in an, in an, in an equal manner. Of course, yeah. And we've touched on what you miss then about America. Is there anything you miss in particular about India? And I don't know how much you're, you're able to get back there now. but Well, my parents are still there, so I do travel. Uh, yes, obviously, I... I had a very kind of international growing up because my dad was uh, in the army, we travelled a lot, so by the time I was 13 or 14, I had more or less travelled the world, wow. you know. So, yes, but I do miss family. My parents are there, I do travel two or three times a year. Okay. Yes, family. Okay, yeah. And what, what you said travelling, you kind of travelled the world by the time you were 13 or 14. What do you think, how do you think that shaped you, that, that experience? I think it, it made me very kind of international. It made me very adaptable. So when I was, which is why probably when I came back again here, it was not that difficult as it might have been. So, so I've become very adaptable, I guess. Indeed, yeah. And you were appointed as senior lecturer at BSMS um, in 2007, I'm right in saying, aren't yes. I? Uh, what attracted you to that role in the first place then? To be honest with you, this was when I was working in Johns Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins and for personal reasons, I had to come back to the UK. Okay. So it wasn't that I avidly sought this job. But sometimes, you know, you can spend years making a decision that don't turn out to be right. Mm. And sometimes you just make a snap decision and this was one of those. And it turned I, out to be right? Yeah, and, oh, okay. it, and, I've, and I've never regretted it. Really? Yeah. So you look back on your time with fondness? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. 
I don't want to embarrass you, but you were a full-time recipient of the BSMS Top Teacher in Year 3 award. And in 2017-18, you were voted the Top Teacher in Year 5. So what's the secret? How would you sum up your teaching style? I think I put myself back to when I was a student mm. and what I wanted from a teacher. And, and I've seen both good and bad teaching. So I think it's, it's what I would want if I was a student. And what, what would you want if you were a student? Can you pinpoint the actual specifics? Just keep it simple. Yeah. Just keep it simple. Keep, it, keep to the basics. Okay. You know, because clearly I, I have 30 years of head start on these guys. Mm. And what I always tell them is that no one drops from the heavens a professor or a senior lecturer. Mm. Everyone has to go through and reach that level. Yeah. And everyone has the potential. So you just have to rise to your potential. Is that difficult though? Because obviously you've got, like you say, you've got so much experience in the field to then boil that down for first year students. Can that be difficult or not? No, no, not yeah. at all. Because I just take myself back to when I was a, you know, a first year student, a totally headless chicken, mm. you know. So I know what it's like. So I try and go back to what I would have wanted when I was a student. And this is kind of similar to a question I'm going to ask a bit later, but what advice would you give to uh, students about to start BSMS now then? I would say to them that they are highly privileged to be in this profession, mm -hmm. okay? And that it is, and that they have to regard this as a profession and not a job. Okay, this, this, what's the difference? I think a job is nine to five, mm -hmm. whereas a profession is where you, where you stay there until the job gets done. Okay, okay? yeah, it's a good distinction. Uh, not always. And number two, you're dealing with a human life, which is why it's a profession, not a job. Yes, yeah. And number three, that, that you just have, that you only live once, mm. you know, so make the most of it. You know, rise to your potential and make the most of it so that when you're on your deathbed, you don't have any regrets. Very good. And you talked about that humanity that you saw in your colleagues at the, the hospital earlier. Um, again, is that something that you can see quite early with, with students, that they have that special knack for connecting with with potential patients and other humans, do you think? I think so. I think I think it's it's partly inborn, and I think it's partly learned. But an element of it has to be has to be there before you. And I think which is why when you join medicine, it kind of pre-selects those individuals who mm. probably have these you know innate skills inside. But do you actually try and teach that as well, or is that something that can't be taught? See, this is a question, a discussion we kind of often have, not just about humanity, but also about professionalism, whether mm. that is something that, that is there. I think a basic amount of it has to be there at a basic level, and then you can fine-tune it okay. as, you, as, you, as you go along. Okay. And what's the most rewarding thing about your teaching role then? Because obviously there's the other part of your role, which is the, the practicing role. But yep. teaching-wise, what do you think is most rewarding? That we are training the future doctors. Mm. Okay. Okay, because obviously... When I fall sick, it's going to be these guys will be looking after me, right? Yes. So, so we need to be sure that we train them right. Yeah, indeed. One more question about a BSMS as an institution, I suppose. What would you say the most kind of evident strengths of it are? Obviously, an institution that focuses entirely on, on medical studies. Um, what would you say it does well? I think it fosters uh, relationships because it's a small, small medical school. Mm. It fosters friendship because it's a small medical school. And uh, its uh, curriculum is quite unique as well, okay. which is what I think attracts students to it. What do you, why do you think it's unique? I think because it's one of the few medical schools that still focuses on doing dissections in anatomy, you know, live dissections, mm -hmm. because often that's what I had when I was in medical school 30 years ago, you know, and that's a very, very important part. 
And secondly, there's a strong focus and emphasis on developing all that, not just developing good doctors, but developing individuals who are developed all round. And thirdly, there's a very early exposure to clinical medicine, which I think encourages that all round development of, of, of students. So moving on to your inaugural lecture, uh, it's entitled Making Dreams a Reality, or it's the first part of the title. Um, we will go into the specifics in a minute, but can you first give us a hint as to what that refers to, that first part of the title? Okay, so there have been a lot of developments in hepatology since I became a consultant 15, 16 years ago. But one of the main ones has been to, has to try and eliminate a virus called hepatitis C virus. And this is a virus that causes um, a lot of problems. And, you know, in fact, now deaths from hepatitis C have overtaken deaths from HIV, if you, if you want a benchmark, you know, which is, we didn't have good treatments. We knew they were close to good treatments, but they have now arrived. And now we want to eliminate this virus. And for me, it's, it's quite poignant because one of my mentors um, in University of Southern California, Alan Redeker, was involved in the original discovery of this virus in 1989. Ah, so, so if we eliminate this virus, it'll definitely be a dream come true, but it'll be the first time that we have eliminated an infectious agent without the need for a vaccine. Wow, so that's quite exciting, clearly. It's very, very, very exciting. Well, that leads me on to, to what I'm going to say next, which is that you pointed out in 2016 that the World Health Organization had mandated that hepatitis C be eliminated by 2030. Indeed. I wondered if you could give us an update on that. Is that still the target? Or? That is still the target, absolutely. Right. Some countries, for example, Iceland are well on target because, because this most of my patients in liver disease are vulnerable. So, so I deal with really vulnerable, you know, disenfranchised, isolated individuals, often because of high prevalence of drug use, which, which is a risk factor for hepatitis C, high prevalence of alcohol use, and often these individuals do not receive equitable care. So most of my research is focused on removing this sort of inequality. Okay. And s- certain countries like Iceland, which, which only have a small number of people who inject drugs, you know, drug mm-hmm. users, they are well on track. And other countries in the world like Georgia, you know, who are also well on track. Hopefully we are also well on track. Okay. To, to try and achieve this because there's been phenomenal funding both from pharma, from the pharmaceutical companies mm. and from NHS England to help us achieve this. So is that kind of a comprehensive guide almost as to what countries are at what stage are trying to reach this target then or is it more kind of guesswork about where we are, you know? No, I think most, most countries know where they are okay. but our biggest problem is the kind of... Uh, epidemiology because we don't have good data as to how many are still out there because most of the people now are undiagnosed in the community so these are these vulnerable individuals who are not going to engage so all the easy you know all the low-hanging fruit the easy to treat have already been treated by these 22 centers of which we are one now we are left with the hard to reach group which are out there in the community. So the next big push is to, is to diagnose the undiagnosed. Undiagnosed, which right. is what most of my research focuses on. I see. I mean, in the blurb for the talk, you cited the, the quite shocking stat that liver deaths in England have increased by more than 250% since Absolutely. Absolutely. 1971. Uh, to what extent does that kind of unsettling truth form the, the basis of what you're going to talk about and your general motivation, I suppose? I think most of my talk is, is, is again, based on this Inequality. For example, if you had a statistic saying that deaths from meningitis have gone up 250%, the government would have already acted, mm. you see. But because these individuals are so vulnerable and because of the strong influence from the alcohol lobby, 
you know we we are far behind for example scotland has now the minimum alcohol uh, pricing for you know per unit alcohol we haven't been able to get that done you know uh, again because of the i think mainly because of our attitudes towards alcohol and maybe the the strong alcohol lobby hmm can you touch a bit more on that alcohol lobby and how, what influence that has, I guess? I mean, I don't really want to make this into a political talk and I'm, and I'm not the best person, you know, to, to actually address that. Mm. But despite a lot of effort from, you know, major kind of hepatologists in the country, we have been unable to get this minimum pricing alcohol introduced in England. Scotland already have, even though they were unsuccessfully challenged by the alcohol whiskey industry but they have managed to get that through i think we are still struggling but there have been some very good local initiatives like a sensible on strength scream in brighton where they have asked off license to remove high strength beers and ciders so mm-hmm. so there are some initiatives coming along but i think it's a it's it's a long long way okay. and often alcohol and hepatitis c and obesity which are the three main causes of liver disease all sometimes sort of coexist in mm-hmm. the same individual are there any other reasons why, as you said, hepatitis treatment isn't perhaps given the same emphasis as other diseases and illnesses then, like you said earlier? I mean, you pinpointed the alcohol lobby for one, but um, are there any other factors that you can... Yes, mm-hmm. because these individuals are often highly disenfranchised and isolated, mm-hmm. and they are often not given the... Uh, often the funding for, to, in, to you know, engage with these individuals is lacking, because okay. often they are homeless... They're drug users, you know, mm. and, and they are severely stigmatized by society. Mm. And, and they feel very vulnerable when they, when they come to the hospital. So they don't really come to the hospital. We've, we've tried to get them to hospital, which we know hasn't worked, which is now why we are going out to them. Right. So it does point to a wider kind of societal Yes, absolutely. Issue. absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And what's, um, can you touch on the idea of symptom burden, or you're going to touch on that in your lecture? Yes. Um, could you please explain what is meant by that and what context you'll discuss it in? Yes, so, so once people develop liver disease, it initially has a stable phase where they don't develop any complications. And then they start to develop complications when the liver starts to fail. And one of the main complications is buildup of fluid in the belly, what we call as ascites. Mm. And that can result in horrific symptoms. And patients often have to go back and forth, back and forth, because they go in, have it drained, it builds up again, they go back in, come up, and they come out again, and it's a vicious circle. And yes, we can offer them a transplant, but again, because of the vulnerable nature of the people, they are often not transplant candidates. Many often have ongoing alcohol and drug use, so only a small subset can be transplanted, which is the only curative option. Okay, I see. And, and if you could sum up kind of how optimistic you are then about the treatment of hepatitis C in general, um, you mentioned earlier that you were quite excited by the possibilities, but there are obviously still a lot of obstacles they've just outlined. I was wondering if you could put it on a scale of 100, almost, you know, where, how optimistic would you say you were? I'm an incurable optimist. If right. I wasn't, I, I wouldn't survive in my job. So, so I'm optimist. Uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic because the government now is encouraging community diagnosis. There's, they've put a lot of funding into it to screen people in the community. So, yes. So, but I think it's important to understand that traditionally, hepatitis C is a hospital-based treatment. It's going to take time for people to switch around to moving it to the community, but it's, it's happening. Okay, great. Well, that's a little taster of the inaugural lecture, and we'll put all the information in the uh, description and, and later in the, um, in the podcast as well. Um, so what ideally would you like 
your audience to take away from the lecture? If they could take away one key message or even emotion or sensation, what do you think it would be? I think it would be that um, not to stigmatize people with liver disease because they, they can be helped and it is and we'll show how it is possible to engage with these most vulnerable people and once you engage with them, you, you don't just cure their liver disease, you, you make them once again functioning members of society because once you engage with them, they then re-engage back with society. And you take that stigma away as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Okay. Well, we end the podcast um, with some quick-fire lifestyle questions. <laughs> you already described these as interesting over email, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing how you're going to respond to them. Um, the, uh, you've touched kind of slightly on this one already, actually, but what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? 16, yeah, 16, I was in Delhi. I would say, uh, you know, that you only live once. Mm-hmm. So make the, don't waste this life. Make sure it, it amounts to something. Otherwise, if you waste it, I think it's a real travesty. Of course. Um, and what's your favourite place in Sussex? Beachy Head. So you go hiking there quite often? Not hiking, driving. Yeah. And there's a nice pub there just, just at the... I don't know whether you've uh, been there. The one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, yeah I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, yeah. it's a good so, one. So we, so, we, so we go there. I, I, I know that it has bad connotations as well, Beachy mm. Head. Because of, obviously, you know, some, sometimes course, people yeah. do, do sad things there, but, but, but I just love that, that place. It's a lovely spot. Yeah. Um, and what are you currently reading, watching or listening to? You can pick one or all three of those if you want. What am I currently reading? I'm reading a few things. I, I have this habit of starting three or four different, <laughs> different uh, books at one time. And sometimes when I'm traveling and if I don't have space to carry, I just tear them up and take the, the kind of unread book bits with me. Mm. So what am I reading now? Oh yes, I'm reading the uh, the story about that uh, Auschwitz tattooist. I don't know whether you what's it called, uh, tattooist of Auschwitz. Have you heard of that book? Yes, uh, it's, I'm not sure the title. It's I think about a chap who was in Auschwitz who who used to do sort of tattoos on prisoners and then he tattooed a lady, and then they eventually got married. So ah. I've just about started it. Okay, great. And what are watching or listening to? Watching, I've seen a few things actually. Uh, Proven Innocent, I, I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. Then I'm also watching Manifest. Are you, are you seeing that? No. This is a fantastic program about a flight that disappears for five years and then comes back, and five years have been lost. And, and the people on the plane have no idea about that. Right. That, that they've lost five years in air. So they come back and come life back, moved on. Life has yeah. moved on. That's right. fantastic. And I've just finished seeing Dark Money. Have, have I, I need to catch up. So Dark Money, it's a, it's a four-part series about uh, a couple in London whose son goes to Hollywood to act as a child actor and then he gets abused by the producer. Okay. And how they accept money, silence money, and how that so. wrecks their life and eventually then they seek justice for their son. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it was really powerful, that, that one, Dark Money. And listening to anything, anything on the stereo or podcast or anything? I, I don't do podcasts. No? Yeah. <laughs> you music. did mention that earlier, actually. <laughs> I don't yeah. do podcasts. But music, when I drive, um, Virgin Chilled is my, is, okay. my, is, my, is my radio channel. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and um, could you describe your perfect weekend? That's a tough one. Perfect weekend. There are many, many different types of perfect weekend. It could be spending time with my family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just, doing, just, just being together or doing stuff together. It could be in a nice exotic holiday. So we went to Portugal. I went to Portugal with a friend to Algarve. That was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We're planning to go to Goa in December, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Great. So still a keen traveller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, do, I do. I do travel a lot. 
Brilliant. And uh, lastly, perhaps the one that people tend to struggle with the most, who are your three fantasy dinner party guests, alive or dead? And they can also be fictional if you really want to go that way. Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Mm. Three. Nelson Mandela has to be one. Okay. Barack Obama, definitely another one. Okay. And maybe my mentor, Alan, Alan Redeker. Ah, from USC. From USC, who's still alive, 90, just stopped working. Yeah, he's been a fantastic mentor to me. We're still in touch. Brilliant. Mm. Thanks very much, Samita. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Many thanks to Samita for her time. To find out more about her inaugural lecture and to book a place, follow the link in the description. And we continue our focus on the inaugural lecture series in next week's podcast, which is with Martin Smith, Professor of Geochemistry here at the University of Brighton. See you next time.